I also just want to mention that in your bulletin, there's a postcard regarding our Easter activities. Uh, that would be a great tool for you to use uh, if you have a neighbor with maybe some kids to invite them to the egg hunt. So uh, take advantage of that. Mark D'Augusto, our communications director, put a great, uh, did a great job putting that together. And so uh, let that be a tool for you to use to invite somebody to the egg hunt or even Easter service. And so use it in that way. Uh, let's pray before we dig into God's word. Uh, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. He was the most brilliant man ever to be born in the United States. At just age one and a half, he was already reading. This kid, when he was six years old, he could speak seven languages fluently. Six years old. They estimate his IQ was somewhere between 250 and 300. Now keep in mind, Albert Einstein was a meager 200. He was so brilliant, this kid could master any language in one 24-hour day. At age eight, he passed MIT's entrance exam. At nine, Harvard's, but they said he was too young to enter, so they made him wait till he was 11. He graduated from Harvard at 16 years old while already teaching there part-time. William Sidus. And I can tell by the utterly blank look on your faces right now that you got no idea who I'm talking about on that screen right there. Amazing, isn't it? That kind of intelligence, that kind of giftedness, yet we don't know who he is? The reason is because sadly... Sidus wasted his life pursuing trivia, not applying himself, shirking responsibilities, turning down great opportunities, working as a common clerk, doing menial tasks in a New York business office to die unknown, unheard of. Great potential. Started strong. Didn't finish well. The scriptures teach us that, the scriptures teach us that all of us have a certain measure of time Talent, giftedness, skill, treasure, resources. And God expects us to steward those things well. And so the question on the table this morning from the book of James is, what has God entrusted to you? What has God entrusted to you? Here in our passage, we'll be challenged by James in two specific areas that God has entrusted to all of us, our time and our treasure. And so the invitation today from the Spirit of God is to ask ourselves that question, what has God entrusted to me, and am I stewarding it well? The title of the message is Strategic Planning from a Godly Perspective, James 4, starting in verse 13. Please join me there, or we'll put the words on the screen as well. We left off the book of James at the beginning of chapter 4. If you recall, Pastor Bob preached about how we have these strong desires on the inside that cause all kinds of conflict and all kinds of problems inside of us. They largely control our lives. And to be honest, those desires create problem after problem after problem. And here today, James continues to develop that same theme. And he explains how those desires can go awry when it comes to my time and my treasure. And so those are the two sections of the message today, first time, second treasure. And then I want you to see four mistakes. James is going to highlight four mistakes that we can make in those two areas. So with that said, let's begin our time in God's word. If you're ready, say amen. Verse 13 says this, come now you who say, 
Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Let's pause there. Notice first the beginning phrase, come now you. He uses it twice in our passage today, here and then again in chapter 5, verse 1. What you may not know is this is an ancient Semitic way of beginning a strong rebuke. I'm not sure what the English equivalent for this would be. Something like, listen here you, look here you, or as my relatives in Kansas say, here now. Come now you. The point is it's pretty blunt, pretty harsh, pretty, you know, pretty serious. He's, he's disapproving something. Come now you. There's this way of behaving that he's strongly condemning. But what is it? I mean, if you look at verse 13, what's the problem there? Is he condemning strategic planning? At first it seems like it, and I'm like, hey, what's the matter with planning? I like planning. How many of you in here like planning? You're like me. Who are my planners out there? Yeah. How many of you, you hate planning? You're not, you're, not, you're not a fan. Yeah, okay. Some of us are better at that than others. Strategic planning It's kind of ironic to me that here at Millington Baptist Church, our staff has been working on this strategic plan, and we're going to present that next week at the business meeting, and then here, my assigned text is James chapter 4, towards the end here, perhaps God has a lesson for me. Look at it really carefully, okay? Look at 13. Sounds like a typical conversation between a couple of businessmen, a couple of entrepreneurs, a couple of go-getters. This guy could go to Millington Baptist Church, right? They're talking about discussing their business plan. They got all their bases covered. Look at what they're going to do. When are you going to do it? Today or tomorrow? Where are you going to go? Such and such a town. How long are you going to be there? Well, we're going to spend a year there. What are you going to do? We're going to trade, carry on our business. Why? Make a profit. Money. Cash. Anything wrong with this? Not necessarily. What you have to understand is there's nothing really wrong with what they did do. The problem is what they didn't do. They forgot something, or maybe I should say they forgot someone. They forgot to include God in their strategic plan. Did you notice that? He's conspicuous by his absence there. There's no mention of God there. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's no asking for God's blessing. James is saying there's a very big mistake you can make when it comes to strategic planning, and it is called presumption. Presumption. Now, I'm not against planning. I love planning. Some of you, this is like what you do all the time. You plan out your week. You have a meal plan. Maybe you got a family plan. Pastor Bob and I have a preaching plan. Some of you are planners for a living, You're financial planners. Maybe you're an event planner. Some of you teachers out there, you make lesson plans at school. Hopefully, most of us have some kind of retirement plan. If not, you should probably get going on that. And that's good. In fact, the Bible talks about the wisdom of planning. Look look at Proverbs chapter 21. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who's hasty comes only to poverty. The Bible says over and over and over again, if I don't plan, I am a fool. So don't misunderstand. It's wise to plan. Now, how do you define planning? Here's how I define planning for today. Planning is the process of thinking ahead. The process of thinking ahead. And that's good. What's wrong is when we plan without God and we enter into presumption. Presumption is arrogantly assuming something is certain when it is not, also known as overconfidence. That's presumption. Not good. Presumption is when I forget that I don't know everything. 
Presumption is when I forget God when I make these plans, and sometimes even Christians can make this mistake. A lot of times we love the Lord with all our heart on Sunday, but then Monday morning when it comes to our business, we don't really include God in our career. It's like God's an afterthought. James says, that's not good. So what's the solution? He tells us in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting, he says, is evil. Now notice something here. James says that when I make plans without God, when I presume, I'm not just being forgetful. I'm being prideful. I boast in my arrogance. You ever hear people boast like this? Sometimes I hear people say, I'm self-made. And I, you know, I like hard work and sacrifice and you know, maybe you come from meager circumstances, and that's noble and that's worthy of honor, but it can also be a statement of arrogance. You say, what's the difference? Well, the difference is in your heart. What do you really believe? Do I really recognize who created me and who fashioned me and who gave me the gifts and talents and treasure? That I, do I feel grateful for those things? Then I'm okay. But if I begin to take credit, look at me. If I'm like Nebuchadnezzar, is not this the great Babylon I have built? Then I need a reality check. I mean, where would you be without God? Seriously, where would you be? Sir, where would you be without God? Ma'am, where would you be without God? I mean, if you're intelligent, did you earn that? If you're athletic, did you create those muscle fibers? If you're a great singer, did you engineer your vocal cords? If you've got lots of experience, well, who do you think gave you those opportunities? Who sent that first mentor into your life? It's time to look back and say, oh, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. It reminds me of the story of the mouse and the elephant. One time, a mouse and an elephant went on a journey, but the mouse got tired, so he jumped on the elephant's back. Along the way, they came to a narrow bridge. The elephant paused and passed over the bridge. With each step, the elephant took the bridge, shook. When safe on the other side... The little mouse turned to the elephant and said, we sure did shake that bridge, didn't we? (laughs) See, what James is saying here is like, I am the mouse. God is the elephant. God is the one who made it all possible. I need to be very careful about taking all the credit. This is a temptation, as Pastor Bob said so eloquently last weekend. We are all glory thieves. And so instead, we need to take a moment every time I rest my head on the pillow at night and say, thank you, Lord, for what you allowed me to accomplish today. To God be the glory. Now, I'm not saying if you've achieved some measure of success in your life that you can't celebrate that. Of course you can, and we want to celebrate with you. What I'm saying is in your heart of hearts, don't forget the one who made it all possible. In your heart of hearts, don't forget to give the glory back to God. In your heart of hearts, don't forget who you should be doing it for. God. Amen? And when it comes to planning, you may never have thought about it like this, but when you plan and leave God out, even though you may not mean to, there is a subtle attitude of self-sufficiency there, isn't there? There's this thought, I think I can handle this on my own. It exposes the fact that I believe it's possible to know enough about my future to actually manage all the risk. James says, whoa, not true. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now, I realize there are some risks we should manage. Some of you, you work in insurance, and that's like your whole job, to manage risk. And that is a noble profession, and we ought to do our very best. 
But James says this, wait, 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 is it really true? Is it really possible to know enough about the future that you can eliminate all possible risk? No. We know this back in 2008 when so much money was lost by investors in our country. What did they tell us? They said, we didn't know this was possible. These circumstances never happened before. How could we have predicted this? We didn't know. And James says, exactly, you didn't know. None of us knows what's going to happen tomorrow or even tonight, much less next year. That knowledge is not given to us, and we may make educated guesses, but even the most educated guess can be wrong. How many of you have seen this picture before? Harry Truman holding up the famous paper after he won the election, but they printed the headline too early. That's a good reminder that our best predictions can be wrong. Our plans can get interrupted. Life can be so unpredictable, can't it? You just don't know about the future. Neither do I, because we all know there are some things in our lives that are impossible to plan. You don't plan for disease. You don't plan for cancer. You don't plan uh, to get divorced. You don't plan to have someone pass away that's very close to you. That great theologian Mike Tyson said it this way, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Some of us know what that feels like, to get punched in the face by life. We don't plan for tragedies. We don't plan to lose our job in the middle of our life. The unexpected happens, doesn't it? I mean, who really knows what's going to happen tomorrow? A war could start. The economy could tank again. Your friend could abandon you. Jesus could come back. I don't know, and neither do you. Just think about everything that's happened in your life for like the last 10 years. And consider, did you have any clue what today would be like, really? Chances are, if you're like me, probably not. There's been some surprises along the way. There's a lot of unknowns. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Some of you are more aware of this than this than others. Maybe you work in sales or you work on commission or you're self-employed and you know you can go from feast to famine in your income. One day it's great, the next day it's the pits. And you know you don't have any assurance. And so because of that, you're maybe more aware of this truth uh, and you don't have the illusion of security that many of us have. But the truth is, whether you work on commission or not, no matter where you work, there is no guarantee of perpetual success for any of us. Life is unpredictable. That's exactly why James is saying, that's why you need God. There are some things you don't know. There are some things you don't even know you don't know. So James says, when you make plans, phrase them in a certain way. Say it like this. If the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. Circle the word if in your Bible. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But if God doesn't want it to happen, it's not going to happen. And it doesn't display a lack of faith to talk like that or to pray like that. Which is one of my hot buttons, by the way. There's this false teaching out there that says, if you pray like this, Lord, if it be your will, then that actually shows you doubt and reveals a lack of faith in your life. That's totally, totally wrong, false teaching. Not only are we explicitly told right here in the scripture to pray like that and talk like that, Jesus himself modeled praying like that. Paul the apostle prayed like that in 1 Corinthians. There's tons of examples all over the Bible. It doesn't display a lack of faith to pray according to God's will. And so here's how you pray for something. You say, Lord, this is my heart's desire. I believe you can do this. I believe you're all-powerful, and I'm praying that you will do this. I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to set my heart's desire before you like water before the Lord. 
But even if you don't, I'm still going to serve you, and I'm still going to trust you. That does not display a lack of faith. I would argue that actually displays, displays great faith to pray like that. Okay, my rant is over. But praying like this is something that Christians have done for centuries. The great D.L. Moody used to write letters, and at the bottom of his letter, underneath of his name, he would always have those two initials, D.V., Deo Valente, Lord Willing. Recognizing I'm limited in my knowledge. And that's exactly why being a friend of God is such good news. God is omniscient. Job 37, 16, God is perfect in knowledge. That means God has all knowledge. He knows everything. Knows everything about me, everything about you, everything about everything, everything about the world, everything about your future. He even knows things that would have possibly happened, even though they didn't happen because he didn't allow them to happen, but he knows what would have happened. I think it was Tim Keller who said, if you knew everything God knows, then you would have answered your prayers the same way God answers your prayers. Isaiah says it this way, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows who's going to be our next president in 2020. God knows. God knew you were going to lose power this week. God knew you were coming to church today. God knew you were going to sit in that chair. God knows what you're going to have lunch later before you even decide what you're going to have lunch later. God is omniscient. There is nothing he doesn't know. Sir Robert Grant wrote it this way in his hymn, Oh, worship the King, all glorious above. Oh, gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In you do we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Our friend. What a friend we have. And sometimes you see, you hear people, oh, Jesus is my friend. That's a very significant friend to have. But yet he is. So in light of who he is, don't you see how foolish it is to make plans without him? And so as Christians, we make our plans, but we do so in pencil, not pen, because we recognize God is the real author of our lives. As Christians, we make our plans, but we do so in pencil, not pen, because we recognize God is the real author of our lives. Corey Tim Boone once said, never hold your dreams or desires in your hands too tightly. Always hold them with an open hand, lest God have to pry your fingers to get you to release it. And so we make our plans, but we recognize our frailty and our weakness, and we say, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. This is the road less traveled, isn't it? This is not what our culture promotes. Our culture says, live self-sufficient. But the Bible says, no, no, no. Live God-dependent. This is the road God calls us to travel. Not so much self-sufficiency like the American culture, but in God-dependency like the Christian culture. Why? Because James says in verse 14, your life is a mist. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. You know what it's like to go outside early in the morning, and you talk to somebody else, and it's so cold out there that you can actually see their breath as they're talking to you? James says, that's what your life is like. Your whole life is like that. All the scriptures testify to this reality. In Psalm 103, it says, as for man, his days are like grass. Job 9.25, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. 
Psalm 102. For my days pass away like smoke. Let me show you what my life is like. You light a match, you look at the fire, but it's not the fire, it's the smoke. That's my life. Here today, gone tomorrow. That was my life. You want me to show you your life? This is, this is your life right here. Ready? Not the fire. The smoke. What will you do that really matters in your life? There's a poem that says, When I was a child, I laughed and wept. Time crept. When as a youth, I dreamed and talked. Time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When older still I grew, time flew. Soon I shall find in passing on, time gone. One of these days it's going to happen. One of these days we're going to be six feet under, you're going to be in an urn, or you're going to be in a mausoleum somewhere, and I'm not trying to be morbid or anything, but our life on this earth is relatively brief. And that's why God says the time to serve me is now, and that's what James means in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And so there's another mistake that we can make with our time. If we want to be good stewards with our time, we must not make mistake number two, which is procrastination. Mistake number two is procrastination. It's a subtle trap. It's when I live in the land of someday I'll. It's the round to itville. It's the, 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 you know, I have good intentions, like the road to hell. One of these days, I'm going to get serious about God. I'm going to get committed. One of these days, I'm going to go through the Bible. One of these days, I I am going to be the dad I want to be. One of these days, I'm going to serve the Lord in this or that way, but then it never comes. One day, Jesus told a parable about this. It was called the parable of the talents, remember? He gave a talent to one man, five to another, ten to another. He told him to go invest it. He left and came back years later. Two guys had doubled their money. He said, well done. But the third guy had taken his gold and buried it in the ground, and Jesus looked at him and said, you wicked servant. Now, what had he had done that was so bad? It was not like he sinned or made any sin of commission. It was a sin of omission, wasn't it? What was so wicked was that he did nothing. Jesus said, doing nothing is is wicked. It's a trap, James says. It's sin. Your life is a mist. Today is all you have. Serve the Lord while it is still called today, Psalm 95 says. You may not have tomorrow. Jesus said it this way, work while it is still daytime because night is coming when no one can work anymore. In light of our brevity, we need to get things right now, pursue God now, love those around us now because when it comes to our time, I must remember it's a stewardship, it's temporary, and I'm accountable. When it comes to my time, it's a stewardship. It's temporary, and I'm accountable. That's section number one. Now, we move to section number two where James talks about not so much our time, but our treasure. They are related. But I want to take a look at that. He begins again with that same rebuke language in chapter five and verse one. Take a look. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you talking about the end time judgment. Now, there is some debate about which rich people James is actually addressing. Are they Christians or non-Christians? Personally, I lean towards the view that he's addressing wealthy, greedy Christians in his audience because he doesn't say, look at those rich people over there. He says, come now you rich, 
roping us all in. Because Christians struggle with greed too. Now you might say, not me. Maybe some Christians do, but I, I don't qualify as rich or greedy. And I understand that. But the Bible does teach us, though, we should be careful about the sin of greed because it is unique in the sense that when we have it, we can be very, very blind to it. That's why Jesus said, watch out for greed. That's why he said the eye is the lamp of the body, that whole section there, uh, that there is a darkness that comes over us when greed takes a hold of our heart. And the reason why we don't see our own greed or materialism is because um, no matter how much we get, it never feels like enough because it's not satisfying, right? And secondly, as we look around, we can always find somebody that makes a little bit more than us. And so we always say, well, you know, that person over there, they're the wealthy, greedy one, not me. But we have to be careful about that because it can be a problem without even us recognizing the problem. There's a blindness that comes with greed. So allow me to just put some numbers before you that maybe give you a little perspective on this. The reality is there's a billion people living on planet Earth today who live on $1 or less per day. There's a billion people in the world who live in extreme poverty like that. And it's hard to get our minds around, particularly when we don't see anything like that around us in Somerset County. But it's true. In fact, according to the World Bank, here's how the income levels break down in our world. At the bottom are those who make the low income in the world that's less than $825 per year. 37% of the world. That's 2.5 billion people who make less than $825 per year. In the lower middle income category, you can raise it up to $3,000. 38% of the world make $3,000 or less in a year. You put those two together, you got 5 billion people making $3,000 or less in a year. 5 billion, look on the screen, that is the vast majority of our world right there. Now, we talk about upper middle class in our country, but let's talk about the definition of upper middle class according to the World Bank. They define it as three dollars to $10,000 a year. Between three dollars to $10,000 a year, that's 9% of the world, 9%. And all that leads to the, the top slice of the pie there. The wealthiest people in the world, the high-income people who make over $10,000 a year, 6%. And if you take this up another level, If you make $25,000 a year, you're in the top 9% of the world's wealthiest people. $25,000 a year puts you in the top 9%. And then finally, if you take it up one more level to $50,000 a year, if you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people, the top 1%. Now, I want to be really careful right here because I know there's a variety of situations around this room where brothers and sisters are struggling financially and wondering what to do on a week-by-week, even paycheck-to-paycheck basis, and so I don't want to be insensitive to that at all. But at the same time, it's clear from these numbers that we actually are among the wealthiest people in the world. We have untold wealth relative to the rest of the world. They would say, they would look at us and say, you're complaining because you lost power for a couple days? That's like every day for us. Nice generator. Wish I had one. They would say, you guys are filthy rich. And we're surrounded by dire need. Now, you might say it's all relative. We make more, but it also costs more to live here. And so it all evens out, right? Not exactly. I'll just give you one example of something we never struggle with at this level here in our country. It's the last number I'll put before you, but one picture of the dire need that we don't even come close to facing here is this. Every day... 
over 26,000 children die of either hunger or preventable diseases. Every single day, over 26,000 children die because they didn't have a meal or because they had a disease that could have been prevented, like malaria or children dying of diarrhea. I put that in my life, and that's 26,000 Alex, Michaela's, and Felicity's every day. Put it in your life. Put it in your community. If that was Somerset County, all the kids in Somerset County will be dead tomorrow by noon. James says this. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? I put these truths before you and the situation before you not to pour guilt on you, but to arouse faith in you. That you would see opportunity to show the mercy of God around you. That I would see, that together we would see the mercy of God in us and that his mercy would produce fruit in us in a real, tangible way. And here at Millington, we as a church want to do our very best to use the resources God has given us to love people well, abroad and locally, whether that's through meals or shelter at the Market Street Mission or prenatal care at First Choice or a cup of soup with the New York City relief bus or a bag of groceries from Feeding Hands Pantry. We want to be strategic and we want to be faithful with what God has entrusted to us. And I have never served at a church that gave away this much money to the cause of missions international and local. I'm very proud of what we do as a church, but there is so much more. There is so much more that we can do. And so let me just encourage you to be faithful in your giving. This is good ground right here. As we seek to love people for the glory of God, let me encourage you to be generous, especially as we close out our fiscal year at the end of March. Now, James is not saying it's wrong to have money. The Bible says what's wrong is the love of money that produces all kinds of evil. See, there's something about the love of money that kind of brings out the worst in people. And James says, here's here's what's happening. I know this passage is harsh, but it, it is my job as the pastor to just preach the word. So Here's what chapter five says. Here's two mistakes that we make. Take a look at verse two. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and, you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Here James is saying there's a mistake we make with regards to our finances and our treasure and the first mistake is excessiveness. Excessiveness which I define as just simply self-indulgence, spending more and more money on myself than is right. The Bible calls this hoarding. Not like that hoarding show. Okay, that's, you know, those guys are really weird on that show. I'm talking about this kind of biblical hoarding is when I accumulate more and more stuff, not because I need more stuff. It's just for the sake of getting more and more stuff. Maybe it's part of my identity or so that I can just feel better about me. And it's one of the great temptations that we live in this culture of abundance, and it's, it, we have an embarrassment of riches here as we make more and more money. We're tempted to spend it selfishly and excessively on ourselves, and the more we make, the easier it is to do. Actually, our society gets pleasure out of watching people spend gobs of money on themselves. When I was a kid, there was this show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Remember that show with Robin Leach? You remember that guy? Probably dating myself. Well, 10 years ago, there was a similar show, MTV Cribs. Remember that show? Is that more relevant to you youngsters? Okay. Well, now, now, what do we got? What do we got? Keeping up with the Kardashians. It's the same show. It's the same audience. All it is is watching people describe outlandish materialism 
I tell people just do not think they're having a good time unless they're wasting money and doing something they really can't afford to be doing. Because they think that's what brings them happiness. Does it work? The rates of depression and opioid epidemic in Hollywood would say no. Comedian Jim Carrey once said, I wish everybody could be so filthy rich like me so that they would realize that it doesn't produce happiness. Or maybe it's not happiness. Maybe they pursue security. They're not finding their security in God. They're finding it in their wealth, in their imagination. It provides a high tower, Proverbs says. But James says what it really is, is it's displeasing to God. And the reason is because if someone's actually been entrusted with treasure, it's a stewardship from God. But if they think it's because of them, that they earned it and that they did it, and it's all because of their hard work, then they're going to think, all this is absolutely mine. I could do whatever I want to with it. But James says, no, 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 no. You need to realize it's because of God's gifting and God's grace. And when you realize that in your heart of hearts, you will become radically generous. That kind of self-indulgence is not the way of the Christian. The Bible teaches that God owns it all. Not only in creation, but in redemption, that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe as we sang earlier. And we have to remember, just like our time, our, our treasure is a stewardship. It's temporary, and I'm accountable. It's a stewardship. It's temporary, and I'm accountable. So don't make the mistake of assess- excessiveness. And then the last mistake we'll look at in verse 4. He says this, Behold, the wages of the laborers you mow, who mow your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These are business owners who don't treat their employees fairly. They are ripping people off. And the fourth mistake we can make when it comes to our treasure is exploitation. A little background. In New Testament times, there was no such thing as the middle class. There was only upper class and lower class. Unfortunately, the rich people tended to own everything, and they manipulated and oppressed the poor people. And if you were poor then you would begin to work hard labor on a daily basis. You were hired at the beginning of the day. A man would go into a town, hire you as a worker. There were no contracts, okay? This was before labor unions, all that stuff. Never even thought about that. No laws to protect the workers. After you were hired, you worked all day. And at the end of the day, you were given your money. But if your boss decided that he didn't want to pay you that day, then that's what you, you got nothing. So you could work all day. The boss could say, I don't like your work. And then you went home with no money. Then he kept the money and also got your work. Or maybe he wouldn't keep all the money. Maybe he might pay you less than he originally agreed to. Whatever he did, the point is, he was ripping you off in one way or another. And God says, that's not right. You shouldn't do that to people made in my image. You shouldn't make people make money using dishonest means like that. Don't rip people off. Ah, what was the big deal? Nobody really noticed it. James says, that's not true. Somebody did notice it. His name is the Lord of hosts. That name in the scriptures of God, that, that description of God is used almost exclusively as him coming one day as judge. The Lord of hosts. You do not want to stand before the Lord of hosts and answer for some money you gain dishonestly by ripping somebody else off. God is omniscient. He sees what you're doing. Psalm 109 says he stands at the right hand of the poor. And he takes special notice when you take advantage of them. Now, in our days, there's a lot of different ways to make dishonest money that would be just as wrong. Uh, recently, Wells Fargo, in the news, uh, they were 
caught for for, by forcing their employees to open up fake online bank accounts to look more widespread than they really were. That's a dishonest business practice. Uh, something small, small, you say, well, somebody sells you a used car, but it's a lemon, and they don't really tell you, you know, what's wrong with it, and that's dishonest gain. Or if you go to your own job, and then you waste time at work doing personal stuff when your employer thinks that you're working, that's dishonest gain. What you're doing there that's so wrong in God's eyes, you say, what's the big deal? What you're doing there is you're using another human being for your own selfish desires. And we got it totally backwards. We're using people because we love money. God says you're supposed to love people and use the money to love the people. Then James says in verse 5, here's what you look like. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. What a gruesome image. You know, I'm told that when cattle are walking down the chute towards the slaughterhouse, scientists have attached sensors to them to see if they know what's about to happen. You know what? They say they don't have a clue. They're just as placid and calm as can be, totally unsuspecting, totally unaware of what's about to happen at the end of that ramp. Friends, God says the wicked have this coming judgment this coming day of reckoning with the Lord of hosts, yet they have no concept of the fact that God's judgment is a reality. But it is. The great intellectual Daniel Webster was once asked, what is the greatest thought that you've ever thought of? He was a brilliant scholar, great intellectual. He was asked, what's the greatest thought you've ever had? And he said, the greatest thought I've ever had is that I am personally accountable to God one day for my life. The greatest thought I've ever had. I'm personally accountable to God one day for my life. It's a stewardship. It's temporary, and I'm accountable. A.W. Tozer once said, I'm convinced I'm not going to be in heaven for five minutes before I look around and see the riches of glory before I say, oh my, I could have done so much more. Friends, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it ever even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Do not set your gaze and set your mind on things below. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Store your treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This world is passing away. Your life is a mist. Everybody agrees with this. Even secular scientists will agree with the fact that this world is passing away. Eventually, the sun is going to burn out. It's not eternal. Eventually, it's all going to be gone. And as a result, in the end, nothing we do will make any lasting difference unless there is a God in eternity. And it's not just the world passing away. We're all passing away. Maybe as a pastor, I see this in a a more intimate way. Maybe I get a glimpse of this more often than most people. But I I oftentimes find myself in a hospital room towards towards the end of someone's life in the last few days and come to visit with them and pray with them and be with them, and it's a privilege to do that. But I, I see this over and over and over again, and it's just so true. It's so clear that one day in the end, you're gonna either end up in a hospital or at home on hospice somewhere in a borrowed bed, wearing borrowed clothes, living out borrowed time. All of us will end up somewhere in a borrowed bed, wearing borrowed clothes, living out borrowed time. What are you doing now that's going to matter five million years from now? What are you living for? 
2 Peter 3, in light of the fact that all these elements will burn with fervent heat, what sort of people should you be? See, the question in 2 Peter is not, where is the promise of his coming? Peter says, since he is coming, that's the wrong question. The right question is, since he's coming, what sort of people ought you to be? Do you realize, do you understand that nothing else matters in this life than loving God and loving people? That's it. I think it was Francis Chan one day who said, I'm not so much afraid of failure, I'm afraid of succeeding at the wrong things. Failure is succeeding at the wrong things. I remember the story about the guy who was a student in college and he turned in a paper and he got an F. But it was a very well-written paper and it was a good assignment. And he asked the teacher about it and at the top of the paper, the teacher wrote this, great content, wrong assignment. You see, the teacher had asked him to, to, to write about something totally different and although he did a good job and the paper was good, <laughs> great content. Wrong assignment. You see, when it comes to life, I think that's true for a lot of American people. They're succeeding, but they forgot that it's a stewardship, it's temporary, and they're, account- and they're accountable. And God's looking at down, and he's saying, great content. Wrong assignment. The assignment is for me to be a faithful steward with what God has entrusted to me. And James says that applies in two areas, very specifically to all of us, your time and your treasure. And here's, I think, the big idea that James is getting at. If you forget everything else I said today, just remember this. When it comes to your time, trust in God with what you cannot control. And when it comes to your treasure, honor God with what you can control. Trust in God with what you cannot control and honor God with what you can control. Can we say that together? Trust in God with what you cannot control and honor God with what you can control control. So maybe you're here today and frankly, you've been making plans without God. Let me ask you, what are your plans for this week or this month or this year, the next 10 years? Does God have a say in your future about that? Have you talked to God about your plans to go back to school or get that degree or move here or there? Have you talked to God about your plans to get married or have a baby or stay single? Or have you talked to God about when you're going to retire, don't you think he's interested in those details in our lives? Of course he is. And so today, whatever they are, maybe you need to begin to submit those plans to him. And maybe you need to work that little phrase in, if the Lord wills, into your speech. Maybe today at lunch, uh, when you're talking to somebody, you could just slip that in. Uh, Lord willing. Just see if you can work that into your conversation. Just, just, just as a reminder of your frailty and your submission to God. Now, could that become trivial? Could that become meaningless? It could unless you mean it. Trust God with what you cannot control. And then secondly, maybe you're here today and you haven't been honoring God with what you can control and maybe you haven't been faithful in your giving and today you want to recommit that area of your life to him and you know it's time to get your priorities straight and you need to step up your giving and turn this area over to him. Some of you, you're not giving and you need to maybe make a decision to start giving something. I would encourage you to start giving something. Some of you do give already, but it's time to start giving in a less sporadic way and a more systematic way and start giving regularly. Some of you give regularly and it's maybe time to step up to the next level, which is tithing and give God 10% of your income. And some of you, you're already doing that. And frankly, in your life, God has blessed you so much that that doesn't even feel like a sacrifice anymore. And so you need to step up the next level and become an extravagant giver. And maybe you're at a place in your life where you're about to give the biggest gift you've ever given. 
and honor God like that. But God says in the Bible, we're all to grow in the grace of giving. Because every time I give, I give away a little bit of my selfishness. We don't give because God needs our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We don't give for that reason. We give because God wants our heart. And when we give, we reflect our God. Because when our God saw our need, he gave his very best. Our God is a giver. And you're never more like him than when you are generous in your giving. Jim Elliott said it this way, he is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. Trust God with what you can't control. Honor God with what you can control. Amen? I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up as we close. And allow me to share with you a poem that I found this week that I think is very appropriate to our text and our sermon today. It's written by Martha Snell Nicholson, and it's called His Plan for Me. Listen to these words. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plans for me, the plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way with me. How I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief though he loves me still. He would have me rich, but I stand here poor, stripped of all but his grace. While memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths I can no longer retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears that I cannot shed. I shall cover my face with my empty hands. I shall bow my uncrowned head. Lord of the years that are left to me, I give them to thy hand. Take me and break me and mold me to the pattern that thou hast planned. Trust God with what you cannot control. Honor God with what you can control. Amen?